back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Greg Knuckles from strengththeory.com. Greg is a well-known powerlifter, coach, and author. He has held three all-time world records in powerlifting in the 220 and 242 classes, and according to his website, he is currently pursuing his Master's in Exercise and Nutrition Science. He's written for many major magazines and websites in the fitness industry, including Men's Health, Men's Fitness, Muscle and Fitness, Bodybuilding.com, T-Nation, and Swagenegger.com. On this episode, Greg and I centered our discussion around his three ebooks that he released with Omar Izov this year, The Art and Science of Lifting and The Bulgarian Method. This was a really, really great show, guys, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Coach Greg Knuckles, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor, and an honor to have you on my uh, podcast. Greg, just for the listeners who may not be too familiar who you are, which I will imagine will be no one, <laughs> but anyway, just fill us in on your background. Um, so I'm Greg Knuckles. I have a degree in exercise science. Um, I'm a competitive power lifter, and I have a cute dog, and that's about it. <laughs> That's probably the the briefest bio we've ever had. I like it. I like it. Nice and to the point. I don't, I don't, I don't like talking about myself. It, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. If I was to ask you who have been your biggest influences on you, both as a coach and as a person, uh, what would your answers be? Oof. Okay, so as a person, that would probably be my dad. Um, as a coach, uh, I might the first person who coached me and then also the first person uh, who I worked for as a coach was Travis Mash. Mm. So um, he's he's influenced my development as a coach a lot. Could you, I, 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 knew, I know that you, you interned there, like could you, maybe, you know, for myself as well, because I'm just interested, but for the listeners, what, what was your internship like with, with Travis? Like what was your kind of, you know, your day-to-day workings there? Uh, so I, I interned there one summer and then, um, the next summer and then forward a little bit from there, I actually was like a full-time employee there. Um, but in, in (laughs) working there was, was the same as being an intern. Um, he, the, the gym was growing at the time. And since me and Travis went back, uh, a pretty good ways, um, since I needed an unpaid internship, like there was a stipulation that it had to be unpaid for my mm. degree program. Yeah. He was yeah. just like, oh, free help. Uh, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, the, the intern experience with it was very much the same as uh, actu- actually being an employee. But I mean, it was uh, just what you would expect, just training athletes for, for the vast majority of the day. And then you know, obviously, some of the the not so glamorous stuff that goes along with working in the gym, like you know, picking up the weights, cleaning the bathroom, stuff like that. But you know, the the vast majority of it was coaching athletes. Most of them were um, most of them were high school athletes that were trying to get uh, a D one scholarship in American football or basketball or something like that. Uh, and then there were a few collegiate athletes uh, looking to go pro or semi pro as well. Awesome, awesome. So I guess it's just because Travis has kind of integrated, you know, powerlifting along with weightlifting, and you know he's done a bit of well. From what I've read and heard from other people, he you know he's tampered around with bits of Westside into weightlifting. So I was just kind of interested to see if you know what exactly 
you know, is there anything there or is it just people kind of spoofing, you know, like, oh, he's doing amazing things or it's just like, you know, okay, he's, he just tries and dabbles and things. So just kind of uh, it, it changes every year, really. Um, so I, I have, I was there for, for three consecutive summers. Um, and the first summer was, uh, I, I would call it like powerlifting influenced strength and conditioning, just you know, just pretty, pretty basic strength and conditioning type stuff. Um, like a lot of speed work, a lot of agility work. And then most of the strength work was based around squat, bench and deadlift. Um, second summer was, um, kind of like just more, more directly weightlifting Mm. influenced. Um, and then the year after that was, was even more weightlifting-y yet. Um, but yeah, he's he's always trying new things and adapting. Have you ever done weightlifting yourself? <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> you've, you've dabbled. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't quite have the mobility for it, and I don't quite care enough to develop the mobility for it. Yeah, it'd be, inter- it'd be interesting seeing you, you catching a clean and a snatch with your squat, with your squat sounds. Uh, well, I've, like... Power snatched 105 and nice. uh, power cleaned 135. So I, I think I could be decent if I could get to where I could catch them in a bottom position. Yeah, but. Not, they're not shabby numbers at all. Um, so next question that I always ask everyone too is, in your opinion, what are the best things and the worst things uh, you see within the training profession? Um, oof. So, best thing, best thing is really just like people. Am, am I allowed to swear on here? Oh, you can absolutely fucking swear on this podcast. Okay, okay, <laughs> just, just making sure. Uh, yeah, I would say the best thing is just like straight up people who give a fuck. Yeah. Um, like, and and this this is what I tell this is what I tell everyone who's looking into becoming a trainer, and they ask me like like what do I need to do to, to get better like what what book should I read who should I talk to blah 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 and I'm like look like if you really don't know all that much but you like legitimately give a fuck about the people you're working with and you want to get them better like it's going to take you three to five years tops to be really really good at what you do because you know if you care about those people then if they're not getting the results they want you know, if uh, if they hit um, if they hit a wall or something, like since you care about them, you're going to go out of your way to figure out what the issue is. You're going to learn. You're going to improve. So, like all of the, all of kind of like the skills and pieces of knowledge that people talk about as being prerequisites. Like if you go into it knowing absolutely nothing, but you give a shit about people. Like, you're naturally going to accumulate all of that knowledge and all of those skills along the way, like, just in your drive to help people. So I think that that's really what needs to be motivating it. And so I would say that people who, like, just really do legitimately give a fuck about the people they're working with and that it's not just a paycheck to them, I would say that's the best thing. Uh, Worst thing... Worst thing is probably just, like, all of the pettiness and jealousy... Um, like people who see fitness, like the fitness industry is a zero sum game. 
kind of like the idea that like if someone else is succeeding, that necessarily means that you're losing. Mm-hmm. And so the way you get up is by pushing other people down. I see a lot of that. Just you know, grown men act, grown men and women acting like they're in middle school, just sniping about each other behind their backs. Yeah, I mean it's one that's that's a really stupid way to go to go about growing a business because a very small minority of people are going to be attracted to someone who's just uh, incessantly negative all the time. Mm-hmm. And then also, it's not it's not helping people. Like you know, someone from the outside they stumble upon people who are supposed to be professionals behaving like that. That's just going to turn them away. So. I would say that that's uh, that's probably one of the worst things. Yeah, that's a great answer, and I would you know fully agree with that. And I suppose it's not just limited to our profession; it's it's kind of everywhere in society. It's as Alan Watts, the philosopher, used to call it, the, the game of one-upmanship. Yeah, everyone's, yeah. everyone's trying to one-up each other. You know, everyone's trying to be the, the smartest person in the room. It's a, or a, I was reading Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power Now, and he keeps calling that you know that's the ego, that's the ego talking, not the actual being. You know, mm-hmm. people associate with their ego all the time and then they're always feeling that they're inferior that they have to put someone else down so that their ego can kind of feed on that but yeah, yeah. I, I, I would agree yeah um, so Greg as, 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 uh, as I contacted you you know through your email um, about setting up this podcast interview it was really kind of centered around the three uh, ebooks that you've done over the past uh, little while so there's the art and the science of lifting that you do with Omar and also the Bulgarian manual so maybe just discuss you know how did uh We'll, we'll talk about the Bulgarian manual after we talk about the art and science. But with the art and science um, ebooks, how did this come about? Like, when did it? When did you kind of decide? Listen, I want to. I want to write these ebooks. And, uh, and, and why did you write them? Why? Why did you feel the need that they needed to be put out there? So, so sometime around, mm, sometime around last summer, like maybe last June or July, um, was when I decided they should be written, and. Uh, really, the biggest thing that just motivated them is I get uh, I get maybe the same three dozen questions over and over and over, um, like you know, just just pretty basic stuff. And like I see people making a lot of really basic mistakes that, um, like I I realize that you know these people like they're training hard, they're not dumb, they just like they don't understand just like some some really basic foundational information that like if they had that it would make everything else click and make sense um and also like this this is when um like people started like knowing who i was as a writer and i was also the content manager for juggernaut at the time and like it, it really got me thinking just about uh just about kind of like that whole ecosystem of fitness writing and just how information is disseminated. And so so when you think about it, um, and you think about kind of the incentive structure if you're a writer, so there may be, you know, let's say a dozen, two dozen things that everyone who's an athlete of any, of any sort really needs to understand. So like calorie balance, protein needs, um, good basic form for three or four different lifts, uh, basics of structuring a workout, basics of periodization, um, stress management, recovery, importance of sleep, 
few other basic things, but you know, there's there's this like core of maybe a dozen, two dozen things that, that everyone needs to know and understand. So, you know, let's say let's say you're a writer. Uh, you know, you're putting out the information that people are consuming and learning from, and you want to make you know you want to make a career of it. You plan to be writing stuff somewhat frequently for you know at least a decade or something. Those really important things, like. You can't write about them in every single article, or people will be bored out of their minds. Because the thing is, like, there's there's a very tiny amount of information that's really, really important to know. It's it's disproportionately important. Um, but then there's just like an absolute shit ton of information that isn't nearly as important. But like, as a writer, that's kind of your bread and butter because. There's, there's just so much more content there that you can put out. Um, and so, like, there's also just, just such a churn. Like, you know, you're you're trying to be heard above, above everyone else. And so if you're writing about the exact same things everyone else is, like, you're just going, you know, it's just going to blend in with the rest of the noise. So, like, you know, in, in my first, like, full year, like, you know, being being a writer in the fitness industry, uh, all, all of that stuff kind of started, like, crystallizing for me. And I realized, like, wait a second, like, 90% of what people are reading, watching, etc. on the internet is kind of like that vast amount of information that really doesn't matter all, all that much, um, but that, but it is the kind of stuff that's incentivized to write. Whereas, like, the really important basic foundational information, um, people people just don't know it. Um, and so they get confused. They make uh, ill-informed training decisions, just stuff like that. Um, and so what I wanted to do with Art and Science of Lifting is just really take a step back and kind of, like, hammer home all of that really, really just basic foundational important information. Um and then also, so I thought about, you know, just writing it as articles and putting it on the site, but um, kind of like when, when you understand how people assign value to things, um, another thing is the really basic information. That doesn't tend to be what people sell. And if you pay money for something, you tend to just naturally see it as more important. Um, so kind of the whole goal there was to, to help people out as much as possible, to tell them the really basic stuff they, they needed to know, needed to understand, and then also get them to pay money for it, because after someone pays money for information, uh, they tend they tend to like realize, or at least perceive that information to be more important. So, yeah, that was pretty much it. It's, uh, it's funny because I, as I said to you on the email too, it, it's Sim, similar to like you know um, Mike Isertel's uh, um, reason reasons for writing the scientific principles of strength training, he was saying the same thing. He was like you know I kept kept constantly getting the same sort of questions. And as I read your your uh, the art and science, I was like you know what while the layout is is slightly different to how Mike laid out his e his ebook. Um, and when I say his, obviously Chad and uh, 
James Hoffman also helped with the book as well, so I want to mention the guys as well because I always say it's I always mention Mike Isertel as the author, and he'll always say I wrote it with those two guys as well. So <laughs> make sure you mention him. But uh, even though the layout between both your books is slightly different, the kind of team, the underlying team, you know, uh, behind both is is very very similar in terms of listen. There's these big rocks that people need to make sure that they have in place before they start sweating all this stuff that really doesn't matter if you don't have these big rocks in place and. In the in the debriefing chapter in the um, in the art of lifting, now you put it perfectly because just just as I was finishing it, the book, I was like, this is exactly this is very similar to where my thought process is on the kind of training at the moment. And then you wrote you wrote sort of a, um, you know, you're like, hopefully you got something useful out of this book. My hope is that as we were reading along, you had quite a few moments when you thought, I thought that might be true, or uh, so I, I had similar ideas floating in my head, or you know, I wasn't quite sure to put them to words. Or I heard that before, but I, I I thought about it a different way, or I never thought about this. That's, that's exact. Just before I was coming to that chapter, I was like, like I have similar like as I'm supposed like I'm like most people. There's probably lots of people listening to this who probably have five books that that they actually have on their computer. They just haven't finished yet. And I'm very I'm very similar. I got like like basically like ebooks like this in my laptop. So I just haven't, you know. Of course, I'm I'm like most humans. I'm procrastinating on. But your whole thought process was so similar to mine and then just when i got to that last chapter i was like this is exactly how i'm feeling right now i was in like this is pretty much what i would say if i was trying a book right now um so i just found that very very good but uh a few things out of the art the the, the art of lifting book that i want to talk about and um, you start off talking about the 80 20 principle and what i really liked was that you were like listen if you're a beginner you know 20 percent or you know 20 percent of what you're going to do is going to give you 80 percent of your results but if you're getting more advanced that kind of flips around to the other way and i like the way that you kind of started off with that maybe just touch on 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 that point of the 80 20 and how that kind of flips around if you're a beginner then if you're kind of getting more elite obviously is that like one percent yeah okay so um the 80 20 rule um i'm sure i'm sure most of the people listening to this will know this already but it it's based on research by uh alfredo pareto i believe that was his name uh he was an italian economist who uh found that um Roughly 80% of anything was owned or controlled by 20% of people, so land, wealth, uh, political influence, etc. Um, and it's it's proven to, to be kind of like a, a pretty decent rule of thumb that uh, holds true across a, a lot of disciplines. Um, so it's just kind of taken on the name, the 80-20 rule. And so in terms of training... Um, you know, if you're, well, if, if you're anyone, um, there, there are a few basic things that are going to account for the vast majority of your success. Um, one is just simply punching the clock, getting to the gym, doing some heavy compound lifts for a decent amount of volume, um, eating the right amount of calories, getting the right amount of protein, and, you know, sleeping enough to be functional. Like, as long as, as long as those things are in place, that's going to account for, for the vast majority of progress that you're going to make. Um, and uh, if you're a pretty new lifter, that's realistically going to account for just about all of the progress that you're going to make. Um, just because you're still so new to lifting and your body is still so responsive to the stimulus of training, uh, you don't really have to go too far out of your way to do a bunch of extra stuff, take a bunch of extra supplements, do, like, uh, take part in a bunch of exotic recovery modalities, like, you can do the basics and get better, and 
get better to pretty much the same degree as if you really, you know, went whole hog and did a bunch of other extra stuff that really isn't necessary at that point. Um, but then the more and more you get into it, uh, kind of the more and more stuff you have to do um, to keep making progress. And so the 80-20 rule is uh, 20% of your efforts give you 80% of your results and then the other 80% of your efforts give you the other 20% of your results. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so, okay. So just, just to talk about myself for a moment. Um, so I find right now that, um, really at this point, if I want to keep getting bigger and stronger, uh, eight hours of sleep doesn't cut it. I, I like over the course of a training cycle, I, I know I have to be consistently getting nine to ten hours of sleep a night um, for the amount of weight that I squat. Um, if I'm going to keep my hips feeling good from my squat and deadlift training, uh, I know I have to get in some foam rolling and stretching sessions, um, like between workouts. Uh, I don't know. I can only think of maybe two or three, like elite, like world class level lifters who don't regularly. Um, go get massages done. Um, and, you know, just all of the little basic details that don't really matter all that much as new lifters uh, start to matter more and more. So most elite lifters I know also do some some form of uh, meditation, uh, supplements, even though they're, they're not all that important. Um, you know, they start to matter more and more when, you know, 2 or 3% may be the difference between uh, you know, being the best of all time and, and also ran, uh, you know, mm. if, if you're looking at adding 2% onto a 200 pound bench press, like, eh, come on, like that doesn't really matter. Yeah. But you know, if you can take supplements and that's going to make a two or 3% difference that could be the difference between winning a meet and placing fourth or something like that, then, uh, you know, then it does become worth your time and effort to do it. So, um, one, it's it's relative to where you're at in your training life. Just, you know, in general, the longer you've been at it, the more you need to do to keep making progress. And then also it's relative to your goals. So, you know, if you're just lifting for, you know, health, longevity, you know, just to feel good, like, you know, when when you reach the point of diminishing returns for those, uh, those easy 20% of inputs, um, you know, when you reach the point that that where you would have to do more to, to keep making progress, like if you're just doing it for for personal satisfaction and just to feel good, look good, like you don't really need to do more. You know what I mean? Uh, whereas, like if you do have like lofty like uh, comp like competition driven goals, then you know it it does become worth your while to invest the extra time and effort into it. Yeah, I mean, and, and you clearly state that uh, in the art of lifting because in chapter two assumptions, like, um, you know, you, you, you were saying, uh, I'm assuming I'm talking to uh, to the everyday people, not trying to break an all-time world record in powerlifting or Miss Olympia, and, you know, you were kind of saying appropriate advice to someone with truly grand aspirations, the advice is different for the other 99.99%, so, um, yeah, you made that clear to start the book that, listen, you know, what what I what I'm going through here is gonna help like ninety nine percent of you guys without question because I'm assuming most of you guys just lift because you like to lift. I'm not really speaking towards the 
the upper echelon that are in that one percent of the world class powerlifters and, and Olympic lifters and strongmen and, and guys going for Miss Olympia. So, um, what I also loved about the book was how you broke it into those two parts. You know, stuff that matters and, and stuff that doesn't matter. And again, s- sort of similar to Mike, you know, you, you when you got into the stuff that matters, you spoke about uh, specificity, um, overload, and then volume. And and maybe just what I really liked you hammered home was that listen, if in doubt volume is going to be probably the key like you're like do more work maybe just touch on, on volume and how important that is going to be over the course of someone's career you know you're kind of saying from week to week month to month year to year you need to be doing more volume uh well you you pretty much just covered it <laughs> it's it's really it's really not uh well really i sorry i let, let me I, I guess what i'm trying to say is that when you say to someone do more volume they're kind of like so i like constantly every single day have to do more and it's like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because I spoke with this Mike Isertel, and he's like, that's a mistake people make. Then they think that if, if if they didn't lift more on Wednesday than they did on Monday, they're like, automatically they think they're failing. And Isr- and Mike and myself and yourself, no, no, that's not the case. It's like over a long term, you need to be doing more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so, so a, a lot of that is just keeping good records. Um, like, I, if, if this hasn't really come across yet, I'm a nerd, uh, and being, being a nerd, I like spreadsheets a lot, uh, so I, I organize all of my stuff into spreadsheets that um, calculates training volume over given amounts of time for nice. myself, nice. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily, well, I don't look at session to session hardly at all, um, but let's say I'm in an off-season phase and I'm trying to build my work capacity. Then I may be um, looking to see is my volume, like is my total accumulated training volume this week higher than it was last week. Uh, and during that phase of training, I definitely be looking to make sure uh, my training volume from this month was higher than it was last month. Um, you know, and then also that's that's a, a nice easy way to check. Uh, you know, just, just to look at the big rocks first if you're stalling. Um, you know, if if it's been a couple months and I haven't made progress on a particular lift, I can look back and see, like, you know, six months ago, what was my training volume for this lift leading up to my last PR, and now what is it today? And if it's less or if it's the same, then, you know, that tells me that it's probably not necessarily an issue with, the pro- like, the structure of the program itself. Uh, I've probably just, you know, kind of hit a ceiling on how much I can lift with the given level of volume I'm doing. So yeah, it, it's it's certainly not that it has to increase session to session, um, but you know, it, it should it should be gradually increasing over the course of a lifter's career. But but mostly on this on the time span of like months or years. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's, I suppose, they, I mean, I was going to ask this question later, but it probably is better to bring it up now in that, and, and Mike Isertel speaks about this too, that, you know, okay, so we know that we need to keep up in volume as our career goes on to keep progressing, and as we said, it's sort of more volume over the uh, long-term of our career, not, not sort of the acute stages. And But as we get more sort of, as, as we get more lifting under our belt and our training age increases, things then like deloads and periods where you need to resensitize yourself to volume are very important and i know you you kind of write about that too this idea of doing this was actually in your your um, bulgarian manual you were kind of saying you know we need to go through phases where you're doing very low volume but high intensity so you're kind of resensitizing your body 
to get ready for volume phase so you'll get more out of it again can you maybe just speak about that as well I, you know, I think that's a very interesting point in this idea of um, resensitizing your body to a training stimulus yeah so and and see this this is a little bit frustrating to me because it's something that's really really hard to quantify and I, I like quantifying things I really like numbers um, <laughs> but you, you can you can kind of think of it as um, as the interaction between two different factors. One, um, the magnitude of the stimulus you're presenting to your body. And then two, how responsive you are to that stimulus. And so the larger the stimulus and the more responsive you are, uh, the larger the response is going to be. So, um, you know, just kind of of like some, some easy ways to think through that. Uh, like a new lifter on a pretty low volume program still gets a lot stronger really fast. Well, the magnitude of the stimulus isn't really that large, but their responsiveness to it is through the roof. So, you know, the interaction between those two factors, they're, you know, able to get a lot bigger and a lot stronger really quickly. Kind of contrast that with, you know, a really seasoned 15 year veteran under the bar. Um, their training, their training load may be really, really high. But they've been at it for so long, their responsiveness is really, really low. So, again, the interaction between those two factors, even though the stimulus is is way higher, uh, they don't have as large of a response to their training as a new lifter would because the responsiveness is lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is just based on my personal observations. Um, but different uh, different types of training stimuli, uh, it seems it seems as if the um, the responsiveness to them is is specific to the means themselves. So so what I mean by that is um, you know let's take let's take like a, a really high level powerlifter and a really high level bodybuilder. <clears throat> and uh, the bodybuilder has probably just in terms of training volume, so you know, uh, reps times sets times weight, uh, their, their typical training volume in, say, like the 8 to 12 rep range is probably way higher than the powerlifters is. But the powerlifter probably has a lot more practice doing, you know, heavy sets of 3 to 5, something like that. So if you take those two people and you flip-flop their workouts, you get the bodybuilder to do, you know, let's say, like, 5 heavy triples at, like, 85 to 90% of their max and you get the powerlifter to do just whatever god awful workout the bodybuilder is doing not awful in terms of ineffective but awful in terms of like kill me now because that would kill me if you didn't kill me prior um, <laughs> so if you got them to flip flop workouts um, like s- some of my friends who are bodybuilders like if I've convinced them to, to train with me like the next day they're just like oh man like I feel absolutely destroyed like you know because let's say five triples at a fairly high percentage that's way lower volume than they're used to but it's a type of stimulus that they're not accustomed to hardly at all because they rarely work at that high of intensity mm-hmm. um so it it provides a, a very robust stimulus and importantly a stimulus that um they're not accustomed to that they're still responsive to um and then conversely if they convince me to 
train with them against my better judgment. Um, like, my goodness, I feel I feel like death for like you know a week and a half or something. That's that's only a slight exaggeration, um, because you know I'm I'm used to doing a lot of what I'm used to doing. Like I can I can lift 95 percent weights literally every day, and it doesn't affect me at all. Um, well, not doesn't affect me, but like you know I don't feel worn down. I don't feel like I'm overtraining. I don't have sleep issues. Like those high intensity stimuli, they they don't beat me up nearly the same way as say like you know uh, a leg workout that's four sets of squats, four sets of leg press, four sets of hack squats for like eight to fifteen reps per set or something like that. That that destroys me. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interaction between. Uh, the magnitude of the stimulus itself, and then also how responsive you are to it, um, and that that's really that's really just like the idea of periodization in a nutshell. Yeah. That um, if you're doing the same stuff all the time, uh, your body just res- doesn't respond as robustly to it anymore. So so you do need some variation in your training. Definitely, yeah, definitely, yeah. and like I mean. It's funny, uh, like whenever I I read about that, you know, basically the the law of accommodation, as Louis calls it, accommodation. But um, like that's also applicable not just to lifting. I mean, that's applicable to recovery methods. That's applicable to nutrition. I always use the example of insulin resistance. That's just you. You have a resistance to it now. You've you've had a diminishing return to your ability to handle whatever is spiking your insulin. It's not necessarily just carbs, but we'll just say maybe it is that. And then when you can take away carbs. Just in, I'm just using that as an example. Then you start to resensitize yourself. So it's the same in training that if you take away for a bodybuilder the high volume and go some like low volume, high intensity again, this idea of resensitizing yourself. And as you said, listen, that's that's basically what periodization is: is a manipulation of training variables to achieve a desired result. Yeah. Um, but uh, st- one part in the um in the art of, of lifting books I really liked because I'm always talking about this, you know, with coaches. You spoke about um. Um, you know, people saying that they have to do certain exercises, and you were you use the squat as a, as an analogy, and you were like, if you're a powerlifter, squat is very important. If you're a weightlifter, still very important. Uh, if you're a strongman, less important. And then if you if you're a sport athlete outside that, you do not need to squat. And I just like I love the way you were trying to get this point across. You're like that anyone who says that it's complete. In fact, your words were that's absolute nonsense. And I, it was exactly how I would say it. This is nonsense. If you do not compete uh in a sport that requires you to, to squat with a barbell on your back you don't need to do it to get better at your sport it's a general exercise so uh i just maybe just just touch on that point too of like you know why you felt it was important to portray that point in the book too that you know like people need to stop having these ridiculous arguments you were kind of another part of the book was like you're like always ask yourself why am i doing this yeah um yeah I, it seems it seems like a lot of uh a lot of a lot of it is just tribalism, really, yeah. and almost like almost like it seems like exercises almost have like brands, and yeah. people have like brand loyalty to them. Um, and you know, like someone reads an article about how like a certain exercise, or even more ridiculous, like a particular variation of a certain exercise, is like you know, it's it's the be all end all of strength training, and like you have to do it if you want to get big and strong or whatever. And, like, that's that's just simply not true. And I feel 
really like stop to think through it. So like the the example I used was with was with the squat. And so like, you know, if if you're a powerlifter, like, yeah, you better be squatting because it's literally a third of your sport. Like, you know, the yeah, being yeah. a, a powerlifter and not squatting would be like, you know, being a baseball player and never taking batting practice. Like, it's just stupid. Yeah. Um, same thing with a weightlifter. Um, now, I, I do know uh, I do know some weightlifters who predominantly front squat and very, very rarely back squat. Uh, but for most of them, you know, even though they don't compete in the squat, um, it's a very, very good exercise for developing lower body strength in a manner that's very specific to their sport. So, you know, you're standing up from the bottom of a clean bottom of a snatch. That's basically a squat. So for them, not not necessarily required, but still probably very strongly encouraged. Yeah. Like anything past that, um, you're, you're not competing in the squat for something that is basically a squat, you know? You're doing other things, and the whole the whole purpose of squatting or any other sport is to develop the requisite lower body strength, um, you know, to run, to jump, to cut, you know, to perform the skills of your sport. And so, do I still think the squat is a really good exercise to accomplish those things? Yeah, absolutely. But if there's an athlete who who can't squat or who just really strongly prefers to not squat and um, a coach can't can't come up with another exercise to accomplish the same basic purposes. Like that coach is an idiot. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, because like go, going back to the idea of specificity, you need like to accomplish a specific goal. You need uh, like you need means that are very specific to that goal. Yeah. But to accomplish a general goal. There are a lot of different things you can use to feed into that. So, you know, like talking about sports, the, the specific goal is, you know, increase speed, increase agility, increase jump height. So that's going to require specific means. That's going to require, you know, agility training. That's going to require speed training. That's going to require jump training, you know. And then even more specific, transferring those things to, to the sports skills that you're developing them for. So those things, they are going to take specific means because they're specific goals. But then, you know, in support of those goals, you need a strong lower body. But that's kind of a specific, or that's kind of a general thing. Like you just, you know, generally kind of need to be strong from the waist down to pull those things off. And there's a lot of different exercises that can, you know, improve your strength from the waist down. It doesn't have to be a barbell back squat. And Greg, just just because when I was a young coach and I used to hear other coaches say means means what what exactly do you mean by the word you can use different means? Um, just <laughs> uh, just exercises, pretty yeah. much yeah. training modalities. No training the training modalities. That's even more complicated than means. Yeah, it, it's a. Uh, I just have a, a PowerPoint here in front of me from my friend Patrick Ward. And he kind of sums it up perfectly. It was a presentation he gave um, at Joel Jameson's facility one day. And actually, it became an online product, a strength and motion seminar. But he was given a, a talk on program design. And, and like his second slide in, he has like paradigm shift. And he's like, he's like, when he was a younger strength coach, 
it used to be all about strength and conditioning and you used to choose the exercises first and then it used to be predominantly like emphasis on strength with kind of like powerlifting templates and you used to train lots of qualities concurrently like in one session throughout the week and he's like then when he kind of got more into like the, like the eastern block literature and sort of sort of more sort of well-read coaches he was like they look at it as physical preparation they always look at the phys- physiological needs first then they pick the methods and then they pick the, the means next so that they'd go you know basically they do this they're like what adaptation am i looking to elicit what method am i going to use and then would they say what exercises would i use exercises would be like way down the pecking order and then they also have a primary focus throughout each session and each training block so i love the way he compared you know he kind of parallels both of these together on his powerpoint kind of saying like you know on the left hand side the old paradigm is the real sort of like how strength and conditioning is viewed nowadays like it's just all like strength and conditioning is is separate and it's all about like you have to squat bench and deadlift whereas patrick's like you know like the original you know sports science which is uh, steadfast and held true by the biological laws of physiology is like you know it's an adaptation what adaptation looking for then what method are you going to use and then means like it's not about like using that particular exercise and in this case as we said like you know using the squat someone saying oh you play soccer or rugby you have to squat because that's just the end of it where you just said no you don't you just need general lower body strength you don't have to actually squat though to do that yeah and i think i think a lot of it is just that um you know kind of as the pendulum swings from one side to the other about uh, maybe five six years ago um things things were getting just kind of like excessively like wobble boardy bosu bali stuff like that yeah and i, I kind of think the pendulum's just swinging back the other way and you know people are saying like oh no you don't need like all of those fancy tools you just need a barbell and you know i i think uh it's going to start swinging back the other way and you know settle settle in a happy middle for a while and then get off to the other side again um and i mean part of it as well is just like people people have a hard time uh people have a hard time like incorporating and using too much information uh at the same time and so you know uh like if if you look at literature on uh, uh, short-term working memory um most people are only capable of uh holding like four to seven bits of information in their consciousness, uh, like in conscious awareness at any point in time, and being able to like actively work with those pieces of information to come up with uh, ideas and solutions. And so I think a lot of just like the, the hyper simplified ideas in strength and conditioning are just people that like, like not to throw shade, but like quite frankly, just aren't too smart. And like if they can if they can simplify like a large swath of their training decisions that being exercise selection to we're just going to stick to this basic core of compound lifts and that's that's all we do because that's all that works then you know that throws out maybe three or four bits of information that they would otherwise you know kind of have to grapple with to make training decisions so um, you know, it just uh, it, it frees up a lot of bandwidth for them to, you know, think through other things. Yeah, yeah. Then in, in the science, uh, the science of lifting, another you know fantastic read as well. Um, you actually put this chapter out as a separate article on your website. The one about um, just get the actual yeah, strength versus uh, mass gains, and you know you kind of spoke about 
you know, muscle size, fiber type, segment length, motor learning factors, arousal fatigue, and then muscle origin assertions. And kind of out of those six areas, you were kind of like probably the biggest bang for book that we have control over is this idea of muscle size. And kind of like we spoke about earlier on in terms of volume, if you want to get better over the long, you're, you're going to have to keep increasing volume. You kind of made the point that over the long haul, if you keep wanting, if you want to keep getting stronger, you're just going to have to gain more muscle. So maybe just touch into that as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you you ask me questions after after you give my answer to those questions. Well, I, I yeah, I know. Sorry, I, I actually I, I've realized that I'm doing that, and then you're kind of thinking. No, no, it's it's, I, it's fine. I, yeah, no, but I could I could imagine you're in your head, you're like this guy's a fucking idiot. You're like what's 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 going to add to these things? But I guess I just want you to kind of maybe elaborate, like why you feel it's important and you know the mistakes you see people making and this is why i wrote this because people think they can get stronger without getting bigger no okay yeah i i gotcha so um people people kind of have this mistaken idea that um that i'm i'm, I'm trying to think of a way to state this that that uh doesn't that doesn't like make a straw man um, but, but people kind of have this idea that muscle size isn't overly important for strength, that it's you know probably related in some way, but not very directly. Mm. And they point, point out examples of, say, like really strong, lightweight powerlifters and how they're able to lift more than, say, bodybuilders who weigh way, way more than them um, and have way more muscle than they do. And they, they use that to support the argument that, like, oh, no, like, it's it's only about motor learning. Like, you can lift so much with tiny muscles. Like, muscle size doesn't really have all that much to do with it. Um, and that's, that's just simply not true. Um, so that comparison, that's comparing apples to oranges, that, that is comparing, you know, someone who's trained, like, in a very specific manner for a very specific goal to someone who's trained in a very specific manner for an entirely different goal. Um, so, but on, on the other hand, if you take a bodybuilder and you have them train like a powerlifter for a while, most of them turn out to be really damn good powerlifters mm -hmm. because they have all of that muscle to start with. So uh, Stan Efferdine's a good example. Um, Garrett Griffin, he's a really good bench specialist. Eric Spoto. Uh, he was an ex-bodybuilder, now holds the all-time world record in the bench press. Um, quite a few more, like, middleweight guys who I'm blanking on right now. But, yeah, uh, uh, Johnny Jackson, like, mid-800s deadlifter. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, like, if you look at just about any IFBB pro bodybuilder, most of them are, are repping, like, 500 pounds, like, 225 kilos on the bench like it's nothing. Like... They're, one, they are really strong. Two, they're not really trained to be strong in the first place. Like, that, that's not the goal of their sport. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at the examples of the ones who have tried to take up powerlifting, most of them end up being really good at powerlifting because they have all of that muscle. Um, and then when you actually look at research on powerlifters themselves, um, oh, man, I'm blanking, I'm blanking on one of the researchers' names. Um, uh, okay, it was uh, Luvera and Keo. They, they had one uh, that just came out last year um, showing that uh, muscle size in national level power 
is uh, very strongly correlated to performance. Uh, and then there was one by uh, Brachua and Abe back in, uh, I think, 2001, um, which it was a really well done study. They took, uh, they took people from the USPF National Championships in powerlifting, um, looked at uh, total muscle mass and then also um, muscle thicknesses. So like pecs, hamstrings, quad, whatever, just like how thick those muscles were. And comparing performance in the squat, bench, and deadlift to muscle thickness um, for, for muscles that were prime movers in those lifts. So say uh, looking at muscle thickness of the quads and comparing it to performance of the squat. Um, there was like a correlation coefficient of like 0.93 or something like that, which is ridiculous. That's, that's just about as close to a perfect correlation as you're going to get in biology. Um, so muscle thickness is very strongly correlated with performance among people who had been training specifically for um, being able to lift maximum weights in those lifts. Uh, and then also in terms of total fat-free mass, they found that there was a very strong linear relationship between squat bench deadlift performance and fat-free mass per unit of height. So, I mean, th there is empirical data showing that um, you know, if you are actually practicing the lifts and if you are trying to improve maximal strength, the thing that discriminates between, you know, the best lifters and the ones who aren't quite as good are just simply how jacked they are, like how much muscle they have. Um, and so, so talking about that section in the science of lifting, that, that was basically the point I was trying to make. Like, uh, I went through all of the things that can... Basically, through all of the things that determine how much you can lift. So, there are motor learning factors. Um, there are, you know, just uh, segment links. So, how long your torso is, how long your arms and legs are, uh, muscle origins and insertions, uh, degree of arousal, uh, probably a few more that I'm forgetting. But basically, um, the only two that you can really alter in the long term are the motor learning factors and how much muscle you have. Mm -hmm. And the motor learning factor is like, if you're practicing the lifts and you're lifting heavy weights consistently, uh, your technique is going to improve, your uh, recruit patterns are going to improve, your coordination is going to improve. Like, all of that stuff is going to take care of itself just with years of practice under the bar. And so then the, the only other one that can really be like fundamentally altered and uh, substantially affected by the way you train is going to be how big your muscles are. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's really about it. Um, like, at, at the end of the day, as long as you're reasonably good at the squat bench and deadlift and you're competing against someone else who's reasonably good at the squat bench and deadlift, if you have more muscle than them, you'll probably beat them, and if not, they'll probably beat you. And that's really pretty much all there is to it. Yeah, he said here that in one study, the uh, elite, uh, elite level powerlifters' performance and all this was strongly correlated to the thickness of the prime movers. And then you were like, although bizarrely, it was mostly strongly correlated to subscapular thickness in all three lists. That was kind of, that was bizarre. Yeah, I, I, I didn't touch on that in the book or article, but um, <laughs> I the, the more I think about that, I'm pretty sure that that's uh, just reflective of drug use. Because um, shoulder girdle muscles have the highest uh, androgen receptor density, so 
you know, I, uh, powerlifters aren't really like training their subscapularis really hard. So oh, I, I know that. I can't, yeah, yeah. I kind of think the people with thick subscapularis were but people. But there, uh, there's a there's a line I, here. There's a line here that sums it up perfectly. You just said think of muscle mass as potential strength, and the key word there is potential. And I also say that to people too that you know a bigger muscle has more potential to be stronger to create more force. And again, as you kind of alluded to with the bodybuilders. You know, some people say, well, bodybuilders are big, you know, because that kind of, as we start off, you know, some people say, well, bodybuilders are big, but they're not that strong. And it's mainly because they haven't transmutated their size into strength gains yet, because we know... Yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not training to be strong. Yeah, like, but if they did, uh, you know, if, if they trans, transmutated their, their size gains into a strength block, we better believe that they're going to get very fucking strong, like... Yeah. So, uh, but just before we wrap up on hypertrophy, you know, then you kind of spoke about how to go about it, and... I always kind of, um, you know, whenever I'm speaking about hypertrophy to people, I, I, I'm always talking about like this sort of mixed method approach, you know, so I always say, well, people always ask, what's better, 10 sets of three or three sets of 10? They're both 30 reps, but one is like more, causes more mechanical tension, one causes more metabolic stress. You know, the 10 by three, you'll get a little more strength gains, but it fucking takes 20 days longer to complete than three by 10, not 20 days, but you're going to be in the gym longer. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose I got personally myself when I write hypertrophy programs, I kind of like to incorporate you know both methods in in that. Usually, what I do is in my big main in my main lift that day, I'll kind of keep it between three and six reps and kind of uh, just get more volume in at that lift. And then with my assistance work, I'll do more sort of classical bodybuilding stuff. Or sometimes I'll do like maybe a you know a two to three sets of three to five reps on the big compound lifts and then hit some back offsets and it's funny because when i was reading your stuff i was like you said the same thing i was like this guy thinks like me damn it but he put it out there because uh, that's exactly how i would have done it too but maybe just just speak about sort of the, the best methods of doing it and you mentioned brad schoenfield the study we did the three by ten seven by three and you know people were like oh well the seven by three got just as big as the three by ten but you said but the three by ten had more of a life outside of the gym because they weren't in the gym as long yeah, the, the workout took like 70 minutes versus 17 minutes, yeah, like yeah. huge difference. Um, yeah, I, I think, and, and then also the, the other thing you have to balance is one, just like how beat to shit do you, are you comfortable feeling? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, like, like let's say you're working with someone who's a 600 pound squatter or something like that, um, and they're doing sets of three at... 85%, so that would be 510. Like, you know, if they're squatting two or three times a week and they're doing six to ten sets of three at over 500 pounds and they're a 600 pound squatter, like, they're going to be wrecked. Like, so so there is that trade-off. Like, if, if they can if they can pull that off, like, if their recovery is on point and they can, and they have enough time to spend in the gym to do that, yeah, like, that, that works fine. That works great. But most people, one, they're, they're going to be uh, pleased to use a more time-efficient approach. Uh, and two, um, they're probably not going to want to do all of the work outside of the gym to keep their body feeling good to be able to handle that style of training. Um, so, so it is just kind of uh, finding, finding a balance for each lifter between like how much heavy work they can handle, uh, which does have you know, the most direct transfer to performance, and which is still effective for building size. So it's, it's, uh, it's an issue of finding a balance between how much of that they can do and how much of it they can tolerate. Um, and so you just basically get to a point somewhat below the amount of that they can tolerate and then just fill in the rest with lighter work. 
great stuff. All right, before uh, before we start wrapping up, we just want to touch on the the Bulgarian manual and um, maybe just you know get into that. Like, how did that come about? And why did you decide to write about and put it out there? Your experience with the high frequency, uh, high intensity, high frequency training. Um, like like most other things, I, I wrote about it and put it out there just because there was interest in it, and I saw a lot of people uh, badly screwing it up. <laughs> um, so what what got me interested in it uh, actually was uh, just seeing those old videos of Pat Mendez. Do you remember like when he? Uh, like when he first squatted like 800 pounds, like no belt, no wraps at 18 years, 18, 19 years old. And people were just like, wow, what? That guy, yeah, yeah. But when I went there, it was like steroids. Everyone just automatically like steroids. Like, I don't give a fuck. He's 19. Yeah, well, I, I was very much one of those people that saw that. And I was just like, oh, that's awesome. And so I was like, how does this dude train? And then it was just like, oh, he maxes on squats every day. And I was like, that sounds fun. Um, so that, that was, that was like, I didn't, I didn't know any of like the theory background information, anything else. I was just like, dude squatted 800 pounds maxing every day. I like squatting. I like squatting heavy. Let's do this. Um, so I took, uh, I took 12 weeks one summer, um, where I didn't really have, I wasn't doing much of anything outside of, uh, interning at Travis's gym. Uh, squatting, eating, squatting, sleeping. Um, that was that was pretty much it. Uh, and I over the over the course of twelve weeks, I put a hundred pounds on my squat, um, put forty on my bench, and fifty-ish on my deadlift. Um, and I was already a pretty decent lifter at that point. I had a, a mid-five squat, a low fours bench and uh, a low sixes deadlift. So so I was already a pretty decent lifter. And in three months, I got way, way stronger training like that. Um, and so I was like, hey, this, this worked pretty well for me. Um, and so I wrote about those experiences uh, in an article for Teen Nation. And um, people, like other people, felt that that was really interesting. So... I had a lot of people contact me after that, um, just, you know, just asking, like, hey, how did you do this? Like, can you help me out with this? And I was like, yeah, sure. So um, that, was, that was 2012, and between 2012 and when the Bulgarian Manual came out uh, earlier this year, so about two and a half years, um, you know, not, not like, like, I didn't, I didn't charge these people money because... You know, <laughs> there's not that much coaching involved in just saying, yeah, just squat heavy every day. <laughs> but so, but but I did help out. Uh, you know, some somewhere in the somewhere between one and two hundred people. Um, I helped them implement it. You know, kind of troubleshoot issues that came up, um, make adjustments that were appropriate for them, uh, and then just kind of collected all of their experiences and. Um, you know, read more about the theory behind it and all of that. And so um, towards kind of like the middle to end of last year, uh, it seemed that that style of training was kind of on an uptick in popularity. And I saw a lot of people making uh, a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same mistakes that, that people who I had helped out had been making. Um, thing like problems that, that I had been able to help them troubleshoot. 
know all that much about. Um, so the Bulgarian manual was pretty much just like uh, just like an amalgamation of, of my experiences and you know kind of helping give people more information about it if they did want to uh, try it out for themselves. Um, the question I was going to ask on this was uh, oh yeah so just for people listening what what does the weekly schedule look like? Okay, obviously you're, you're squatting to max and also in the manual just for people listening Greg does outline how you would go about building up your your capability to squatting to a max every day depending on where you're at when you start the program but just one thing I want to ask is like how, how does the rest of the week look so are you just building up to a max are you also squat uh, is the bench up to a max as well and then with the deadlifts I know in the book towards the end you sort of said don't do this with deadlift it would be a disaster just kind of ease off and your deadlift grease the groove so like let's say how, how was your weekly schedule looking at sort of at the well I suppose it's, it's like giving a, a, a child a grenade when, when you kind of ask for a template because people will start just doing exactly what you say here which I don't want and you don't want but what, what did it look like did you go in squat if you felt good back offsets if not wrapped up your squat did you do the bench then and go home or how does it look okay so so I've I've done this a few different times um, and so kind of kind of the basic way is you go in uh, work up to a daily minimum on us on your squat yeah and your daily minimum uh, is more important than your daily max yeah. it's uh, you know, it, it's the weight that you can lift no under these no circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you didn't sleep last night, if you're like kind of sick, whatever. Like there, there's really no way in hell you want to be able to lift that weight. Um, so you work up to your daily minimum. If you're, if it's feeling pretty decent by then, you work up to a daily max, and a daily max is the most you can lift uh, without having to get psyched up for it. Um, and without any sort of technical breakdown at all. Um, and so then after you've worked up to a daily max, if you're still feeling kind of fresh, uh, you do some drop back work at around 80, 85% of your daily max for some mm. sets of two or three. Um, and then after you do that for squat, you do the same thing for bench. Okay. Um, after you do it for bench, then um, you know you can, you can hit some just really basic accessory work if you want, like, you know, maybe some rows, pull-ups, curls, something like that. Um, and then a couple times a week, do some singles for deadlift in the 80-85% range. Um, and that's about it. So that, that's the basic way to do it. Um, were, you um, were you benching every day, were you squatting and benching every day, or was it like squat and bench for three days a week, and then it was squat, squat with deadlift the other two, or, or one uh, other four, or whatever? Uh, squat and bench every day, and then squat, bench, and deadlift for about two days. Hmm. Out of out of seven, great. Um, six. Seven, I, I, just, six. I generally recommend at least five, hmm. um, but six or seven is preferable. Yeah. And in just for the listeners, on page thirty-three on the ebook, there's a really really good flow chart. Like, it, by the way, your graphics are absolutely amazing. Who does those? Is it your your partner? Your wife does those? Is it? Did you? Yeah, yeah. That, that's my wife. She's she's a boss. Oh man, like all your your uh, material is aesthetically very beautiful. So it's, uh, so just t tell your wife she does an amazing job. It's like it's it's you know you're envious, you get jealous. Um, <laughs> yeah, that that is a hundred percent her. I, I have nothing to do with that. It's like it's like as we spoke at the at the start of the show when when someone does something uh, really really good and and then you do that sort of ego thing like shit fuck him uh, you know? <laughs> you're almost you're jealous but the the flow chart's really good so 
yeah, you got warm up, work up to your daily minimum, then you're like, how do you feel? You feel terrible, wrap it up, go on to the next exercise. If you feel good, some dropbacks. So it's a nice little flow chart to have. I really liked it. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to know like how you we we benching essentially every day with your squatting and where how the deadlift was exactly fitting in. But that's great. Just maybe one final question on the on the Bulgarian um from the Bulgarian manual was uh, Superman effect. I really really like that. Maybe just speak about that chapter. Yeah. Um. So th- this was this was something I kind of stumbled upon by accident. Um. And kind of what what got me thinking about it is uh, if if this type of training interests you, I would also uh, strongly recommend Squat Every Day by Matt Perryman. I have a um, great book, great book. It is. And so so one of the things he talks about a lot in that book that, that I hadn't really come across before, but which makes a lot of sense, is that um, fatigue is just as much psychological as physiological. And a lot of times what makes people feel just kind of beat up, worn down, um, low energy is uh, just kind of like the, just kind of psychological fatigue. Um, just And a lot of it just comes from training being boring and just not being excited to train. Um, and so uh, some something that, that I've tried and that I've had several other people try as well is um, instead of just working up to a daily max is just like a single, um, just keep a, a big table of PRs um, of various reps and in various variations of the lift. So uh, squat that may be, you know, high bar squat, low bar squat, with or without a belt, and front squat, something like that. Um, and just basically like going to the gym like looking at your table of PRs and just seeing like which one do I think I could break today and you know so let's say it's been a month since you've done a front squat eight rep max or something like that um then there's if as long as you've been getting stronger there's a pretty decent chance that even if it's not a great day you should still be able to break your eight rep max PR for front squat and so you go in you break the rep max and that's basically it for the lift for that day um, and so just kind of like the, the fun thing about that is you're always breaking PRs, like probably 80, 90% of the times you walk into the gym, you're probably going to break a PR in something. Um, and so I find that that really helps a lot with, um, you know, with, with keeping people excited about training because it feels great to walk into the gym and break a PR every time you walk into the gym. Uh, and so that, that helps keep keep people excited about training, which um, helps helps them just feel less fatigued. Um, and also, as long as you have an appropriate number of PRs you're shooting for, um, it, it should it should be something that you can realistically carry out for quite a while. Because you know, let's say you're training five days a week, and you have uh, four variants of the lift, and you have um, one to ten rep max PRs for all of them. So you have you have forty potential PRs you could break. Um, and so if you're training five days a week, that that's eight weeks worth of PRs that you can cycle through. And so you know you should be able to set a five pound PR in a particular like rep range for a particular lift two months after the last time you did it. Mm. So you know it, it's. Um, <laughs> Like it, it feels like you're making progress at like hyperspeed because you're breaking PRs all the time, 
and really you're probably not getting stronger like all that much faster than you than you would otherwise but um it just keeps you really excited about training because you are breaking prs all the time yeah great stuff uh, and then for people listening we'll obviously in the show notes we'll put links to, to all those um, resources that, that we've been talking about throughout the show so Greg just to wrap up um, for I ask this, these last few questions to everyone that comes on the show for all of the uh, listeners who are listening and particularly the coaches what would your, your top advice be to anyone listening in, in terms of furthering their career and developing themselves as human beings um, okay so so two things one uh get to know people and talk to people who have done what you want to do. Um, That's a good one, yeah. Because, you know, it's it's not just all about book knowledge, and it's, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of doing anything is just kind of understanding what it takes to get there. Um, and the best way to do that is just to talk to people who have, who have done it. Uh, and then the other thing is read textbooks. Um, like, don't like I, I say this as someone who writes articles on the internet don't read many articles on the internet uh, don't watch many YouTube videos like that it's really just like shallow level stuff read read textbooks that's like if you want to learn if, if you want to learn something about anything if you want to learn about nutrition like uh, I, I would strongly recommend uh, again by Mike Sertel. Uh, scientific principle, or no, that's his, the, the, the uh, Renaissance uh, diet. Uh, Renaissance diet, yeah. yeah. I'd strongly recommend Renaissance diet, but you know, beyond that, pick up a sports nutrition textbook if you want to learn about training. Like, pick up something like um, uh, Science and Practice of Strength Training. That's a really good one by Zatsiorski uh, and Kramer. Yeah. Um, if if you want to learn about how your body responds to training, read an exercise physiology textbook. Like textbooks are long they're dry they're boring and soon so no one reads them unless they have to for class and even then they generally don't read them uh, but if you really want to understand something inside and out um you don't don't look to the internet for it and until you've read a textbook don't look to pubmed for it like once you understand the basics then you know primary literature is going to make a lot more sense because you have a conceptual framework to plug new information into, but read textbooks to, to understand just that basic foundational information first. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny, you know, you talk about that because I suppose I've been saying this in the podcast too in the last few episodes and I've been saying it to, you know, people who know me who have been talking to that kind of over the last year now, I've kind of realized that I need to get a better understanding of just foundational information. So I've gone back to just reading textbooks now, you know, so biology textbooks physiology exercise physiology and i'm kind of slowly peeling back the layers in that you know i started with biology because i, I like biology and i find it easy to to read and study and then i'll slowly go back then into physics because i'm that, or to chemistry um I, I don't find chemistry as easy to read and then physics so because you you did a danny lennon show and danny kind of said one day i always say this to people but i love it because danny's like if you want to understand anything, he's like, you gotta, you gotta know biology. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And he goes, but to understand biology, you need to know chemistry. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And he goes, but to understand chemistry, you need to know a bit of physics. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And he goes, and to understand all those sciences, you need to know a bit of maths. And he's like, once you get that sort of paradigm, you can kind of make sense out of most things. And I was like, bastard's right. I need to know more science. So uh, yeah. I, I'm sort of the same. And Mike Isertel said the same thing as well. And I know Danny said that to you in the podcast. Mike said the same thing. He's like, read textbooks because your your bullshit detector goes up tremendously then as well. 
um, which is which was a really good way of putting it. But I must say, you know, hats off to you, to the likes of yourself and the likes of Mike Isertel, because I tell people now that with Mike's books in terms of his Renaissance diet and the, the scientific principles of strength training, and now in the last 10 days that I read your material in terms of the art, art and science of lifting and even the Bulgarian manual, like uh, what I say to people is read these. These are, these are like the layman versions of textbooks. Okay, they're not like text textbooks, but there's a lot of sound scientific principles within these books, very easy to read, and they're a great foundation for someone who's only getting into the field and who really isn't someone who likes to read, you know, very dry material if you like so i want to say thanks thanks to you for for writing putting that stuff out there thanks man i i really appreciate it uh final things then well i've got resources down here but you, you kind of touched a bit on that but is there any other sort of top resources and then when i say resources i'm not just uh isolating this to just training like so your top resources could be you know uh books dvds podcasts and, and the topics could be outside training could be nutrition health wellness spirituality whatever it could be any something about the universe i don't know something about geography or politics or anything or self-development is what would be your top resources out there for anyone okay um so let's see uh i i really really liked uh anti-fragile by nasim taleb that's a really good book nice book yeah. um th- this it probably won't really be relevant to pretty much anyone listening, but it's a really, really good read. Um, Power, Sex, Suicide, Mitochondria and the Meaning of Life by Nick Lane is super good. Nice. Um, let's see. For for someone uh, just writing about just like general tips to, to get better at life, um, I've been following... Uh, this guy named James Clear for about the past 18 months or so. Uh, his website is really, really good. It's just jamesclear.com. Um, let me think. Um, uh, the Shallows by, I believe, Nicholas Carr is a really, really good book as well. Um, and then just... Uh, if you want to just kind of generally get excited about the world and the future and where it's going, um, I'm blanking on the author, but the book's name is Radical Evolution. It's really good as well. Awesome. There's some great, great books there. Um, and then finally, uh, Craig, the, before we, um, before I, I get you to tell people where they can find out more about you, what would be the, the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life? Biggest lessons? Um Let's see. Long, um, long, awkward silence. I'll edit that out now. We're joking. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, biggest thing is just like to give a shit about people and to not be an asshole yeah. and to decide what you want to do and be willing to grind. Um, if, if you have those things in place, like if you're, you know, if, if you, I, I don't like the saying, uh, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life, because a lot of the things that go along with what you love are still going to be work. Uh, you know, if, if you're like running a gym and training athletes, you may love training athletes, but like, you know, you still have to clean the bathrooms. Like no one, no one loves that, but it's, it's just part of the, and you have to like do accounting, shit like that. Like, you know, even if you're doing something you love, 
you have to embrace all of it, even the part of it that you don't like doing and the part of it that's a grind. Um, and then, you know, once once you find that, um, and, you know, you, you have the job that uh, you're happy doing for 60, 80 hours a week, then uh, as long as you're, you know, if you're nice and generous to the, to the people in your life and you, you know, you're doing something that's, you know, fulfilling to you personally, and then also uh, you're helping fulfill other people, then things are going to be pretty good. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff, Greg. Really, really appreciate it. Finally, just for all of the uh, intellectual meatheads listening to this, where can they find out more about you? Uh, Stringtheory.com. That's uh, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-E-O-R-Y.com. And it's meant to be spelled that way, people. It is. And people say strength theory, and it's not. There's only one TH. Like, you only get one chance to make your business name a pun. And I did it. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, Greg, just stay online there for like one minute after I just press stop here and I'll wrap up okay. the show. So, guys, what an absolutely fantastic um, interview with uh, Coach Greg Knuckles. An absolute pleasure. No doubt we'll have him on again in the future. For everyone who's listening, I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and you know I'll do my usual spiel here that I always do if you can leave a review on iTunes because apparently people all say that helps I actually can't verify that I couldn't show any science that backs it up but apparently it does uh, so if you leave some reviews on iTunes it helps bump up the, the show and get, to, get the information out to more people so to everyone listening guys until next time take care be well stay strong and I will talk to you then